This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Sipe and Fraser Nelson. And we have the news today as I speak that Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe is on a plane leaving Iran after being freed. James, this case um, when it comes to um, being held in Iran has been going on for years. What's changed? What's changed is two things. One is the UK has paid a debt for they, that this country owes to Iran. It's been a subject of controversy for years now. You know, the UK government says it has been paid concurrently with Nazanin Zakari Ratcliffe's release. The second thing I think is that in Vienna, the nuclear negotiators are, are getting closer to a deal. And I think this is part of a, of a slightly improving diplomatic situation between the Western powers and Iran. Although I think what I would say is there are still other foreigners held in Iran essentially as hostages by the regime. So I think we shouldn't think that the nature of the Iranian regime has changed because of their decision to release someone who they locked up on on, on totally trumped up charges. Fraser, we've seen various foreign secretaries try to make this happen. Obviously, Liz Truss is the foreign secretary in charge at this point. Is this also going to be a relief for Boris Johnson politically? Because ultimately, when he was in the foreign office, he was accused of making the situation much worse. Yes, it was. And Boris Johnson was accused of making her situation a lot worse by um, blurting out in a in a select committee hearing that she was doing work for the government. Now, of course, that was a bit of a misrepresentation of what he said, but it was very much the narrative that Boris had made things worse for her, not better as foreign secretary. He was doing the opposite of what he was supposed to do. And her husband was protesting outside the foreign office. And this was very politically embarrassing for the prime minister. Interesting to see Liz Truss being hailed, even by some Labour MPs, for uh, managing to get through this as Foreign Secretary. Quite a few have tried. She has succeeded. Now, might that be to do with the concurrent payments of British money into Iranian bank accounts? Perhaps, probably. But by whatever means, I suspect if you were to really find out what happened, you would see a fairly grubby deal. You know, the risk is, of course, this simply looks like hostage-taking. And and it looks as if we've succumbed to pressure. But such incidents are seldom resolved in a way which leaves everybody to emerge smelling of roses. Suffice to say, she's on the way back home, and that's a very good thing. And James, what about Labour's response to this? Because obviously the local MP, Tudip Sadiq, has been leading the front and is obviously very happy and actually gave credit to Liz Truss saying that her handling had helped the situation. But there's also been Labour attack lines such as Angela Rayner ultimately trying to turn this into uh, a problem for Boris Johnson. Are they judging the mood correctly? I think there is always a difficulty here. I think you can criticise Boris Johnson for what he said in that select committee hearing. I think it was, it was a loose use of language. But the moral responsibility for the decision to, to look up this mother is obviously rests with the Iranian regime. And you shouldn't distinguish that. I mean, we also should think very carefully about what travel advice we give to people about going to Iran, because it is quite clear that Iran sees, it is quite clear that the Iranian regime sees any Iranian national 
visiting the country who is also a national of another country as a potential bargaining chip in negotiations. And again, I think we, we shouldn't think that her release suggests that the fundamental nature of the Iranian re- regime has changed. And I think you know, one thing I think we should think very carefully about uh, in these negotiations in Vienna is, do we? I, I think that, for example, lifting the sanctions on the Iranian Revolutionary Guard you know, would be uh, potentially a mistake, I don't, I think, because I think the nature of the Iranian regime has not changed. Now, Fraser, Boris Johnson was not at Prime Minister's Questions because he's on a trip where he's going to try and woo the Saudis. How's that going for him? Right now, we haven't seen the results of this, uh, but it's interesting that he's attempting it. The idea, broadly speaking, is that um, Joe Biden's fallen out with Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, bin Salman has had to accept that after the murder of Khashoggi, he was going to get a lot of flack from a lot of world leaders. But he thinks, basically, it's now time that this stopped. He doesn't like the fact that Biden's been so caustic about him relatively recently. So when America comes to the Saudis pleading for them to pump more oil, the Saudis say, actually, we won't. So now we see Boris of Arabia heading off into Riyadh. He's always had quite a good relationship with bin Salman, ever since he was foreign secretary. The two of them have been, not, have been on sort of texting terms on, on their mobile phones. And Boris sees, as quite a lot of Brits see, in bin Salman, not necessarily the leader of a barbaric regime, but a great reformer. Now, that might sound strange, but look at the changes that have come over Saudi Arabia in the last four or five years. The number of women in the workplace, for example, has shot up. Uh, Women were banned from driving four or five years ago. Now the streets are pretty much that of a normal Arab city. Uh, you've had the, you've got the Saudi um, art biennale right now. It's trying to present itself as a, a country going through some artistic kind of glasnost. Yes, it's also a country which is pretty barbaric, as bin Salman didn't exactly shy away from when he ordered the execution of 81 prisoners recently. This is still a country which chops people's heads off as part of the penal system, and we shouldn't forget that. But to Boris Johnson and to others in the British government, this is the fastest changing country in the world, a country changing in the right direction, and a country that deserves the status of British friendship. So he's over there to see if he can do what Biden could not, and try to get oil price pumping and prices coming down. However, by the way, those prices are coming down anyway. I mean, we've now got a new widget on the Spectator Data Hub, where you can see every 10 minutes what oil price is. And the oil prices, it was back down to below $100 recently, not because of anything happening in Ukraine, but because of what's happening in China. And James, you write in uh, this week's Spectator out tomorrow about what is happening in China. Um, tell us more. So, Shen's, uh, look, look, I mean, in China, they vaccinated not by age as we did in this country, but by profession. And the estimate is that there are still 15 million over 80s unvaccinated in China also because of their zero COVID strategy. There's very little natural immunity in the population. And the fear is that what is happening in Hong Kong, where you've got a, a bad COVID wave ripping through the city, is, is, is a forewarning of what might happen in China. And the situation in Hong Kong is really quite dire. I mean, their deaths are at 38 per million people. That is twice as high as the UK at the peak of its second and worst wave. And that's interesting, James, because there was a sort of consensus that Omicron was so much milder than Delta, that even if Omicron was to rip through China, it wouldn't be nearly the problem it was a couple of years ago. Therefore, their zero-strategy COVID worked. And, and what we're seeing now, which really amazes me, is that Omicron, on a population which is either unprotected or has been vaccinated with Sinovac or these Chinese vaccines of dubious efficacy, 
is capable of hospitalizing and killing in a way which we would associate with a Delta variant. Yeah, and, and the, I think also there is a particular problem of of a failure to vaccinate some of the more elderly members of the population. I mean, the Chinese view was it that, that, that because you weren't quite sure how people would react to the vaccines, it was better to start off vaccinating the healthy rather than the elderly. Now, you can say, obviously, it's Hong Kong and, you know, Shenzhen, the tech hub, which is next door, neighbours Hong Kong, you know, that's been shut down for a week. That means the world's third largest port is out of action, which is always going to have an effect on the world economy. But it, this is more than just a spillover of cases from Hong Kong. I mean, Jilin, which is further from Hong Kong than London is from Tunis, you know, that has also been put under severe restrictions. No one's allowed to leave the province without the police's permission. And I think when you talk to people, who, you know, veterans of the UK struggle against COVID, their view is that these new strains of COVID are now so transmissible that even the most kind of draconian lockdowns won't stop them from spreading. And so I think we could well be in for a period where China, because of this and the zero COVID policy, we have a kind of series of lockdowns in China. We get back to some of the supply chain difficulties we saw last autumn. But I also think it means there'll be less demand for oil. I mean, China is the world's biggest importer of crude oil. And as, as Fraser said, you know, the oil price is off about, from its recent peak after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the oil price is down by about 40, almost $40. You know, it's now back below $100 a barrel. So this is, what is happening in China is going to have profound economic implications. I also think that it might affect China's attitude towards the conflict in Ukraine. I think, that, you know, China, as China tries to deal with a, a, an upsurge in COVID at home, I think it will be more wary of entering into anything that could look like a kind of superpower proxy war with the United States in Ukraine. Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening. And by the way, we should say that we are all going to be um, doing Coffee House Shots live in um, Wednesday next week after Rishi Sunak's mini budget. So if anybody listening wants to come... A week today. A week today. So anybody who wants to come join us, you'd be very welcome. It's our first proper event since COVID, so it's quite exciting for us. We're going to be um, at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster. And you can get tickets on spectator.co.uk forward slash spring.